It's the Victorian Variety Show. A small collection of reptiles made in the district of Betsileo contains several very interesting novelties. Among them, again, a distinct species of chameleon. The specific variety of this genus seems to be inexhaustible, and it reminds us in this respect of Anolis. Although, fortunately, the species are distinguished by more palpable characters. This species is allied to Chameleon parsoni, from which, and other similarly armed species, it differs in the structure of the skin. Snout of the adult male produced into two flat compressed high horns, slightly divergent in front, and covered with large scutes. The space between them is broad and deeply concave and covered with rather large shields. Occipital region flat, slanting from behind forwards with a rounded margin behind and without lateral flaps. A dorsal crest is indicated by a short row of small pointed tubercles and ceases entirely before the middle of the length of the trunk. No median series of enlarged tubercles on the throat or abdomen. Skin of the body and tail finely granular with series of rather large rounded tubercles. Similar, more crowded and more conspicuous tubercles on the throat. Heel without spur or prominence. The coloration is now uniform brownish gray the lower jaw and throat nearly black, with the tubercules yellowish white. I have seen only one specimen of this very distinct species from Betsileo. It is an adult male. It is 15 and one half inches long, the tail measuring nine inches. This species is named in memory of my friend and fellow laborer, Arthur O'Shaughnessy who had zealously devoted himself to the study of lizards when his useful labors were interrupted by a premature death. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast in which I talk about a wide variety of aspects of life during the Victorian era that you don't often hear about in the mainstream news media or in films or TV shows or TV commercials about that time period. I often bring you a topic with which I've been at least somewhat familiar for some time, but I still do as much research as I can because I'd like to give you as comprehensive an understanding of the topic as is possible in the amount of time I usually have to record a podcast episode. But this time, I'm going to talk about a person about whom I knew very little until earlier this week. And I'll explain why in a second. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from Seventh Contribution to the Knowledge of the Fauna of Madagascar by Dr. Albert Gunther, 
which ran in the May 1881 edition of the Annals and Magazine of Natural History. I chose it not because I live in Florida and was looking for a reason to talk about the many tiny lizards I see literally every time I leave my apartment, even though they're kind of cute, but rather because I thought it would be a good introduction to the subject of this week's episode. Arthur O'Shaughnessy, the namesake of the lizards described by Dr. Gunther. And I decided to cover O'Shaughnessy kind of on the spur of the moment due to recent world events, namely the passing of Queen Elizabeth II and the coronation of her son, King Charles III. Since Queen Elizabeth was the great-great-granddaughter of this show's namesake, I thought maybe I should devote this episode to my thoughts on her passing. Because even though, to paraphrase Chris Woodyard in a book that I've talked about in a few previous episodes, the Victorian Book of the Dead, I see the Victorian era as more of a cultural period than a chronological one, and I'm generally more interested in the attitudes and practices of people who lived during that time rather than in the monarchy. There's been a lot of talk recently, especially on social media, about British imperialism in general and Queen Elizabeth's role in it in particular. In addition to devoting an episode just to imperialism and colonialism earlier this year, I've also talked about how they interacted with cultural phenomena from the Victorian era, most recently in my previous episode on stage magic and the tendency of 19th and early 20th century Western showmen to quote unquote borrow from non-Western cultures. However, even though my paternal grandmother's parents were Irish Catholics who were born and raised in Northern Ireland, which kind of gives me an innate distaste for the monarchy as an institution. When it comes to the current royal family, I have to be honest, I've never paid that much attention to them. They tend to be treated as celebrities by the mainstream media here in the US, and I'm not someone who pays much attention to many celebrities in general. So I probably know more about Queen Victoria and Prince Albert through the research that I've done for this show than I do about any current members of the royal family, except maybe for Meghan and Harry, because it's really hard to escape news about them. So even though I'm glad to see people in Ireland and Scotland and former British colonies in Africa and other parts of the world speaking out about imperialism and hopefully educating a few Americans, because personally, I don't remember learning much about this stuff in the history classes I took in school. And history education in this country's only gone downhill since then, especially in the uh, state that I live in that I mentioned earlier in this show, Florida. I don't feel knowledgeable enough about today's royal family to talk about them very much in depth. However, I didn't come to that conclusion until a few days ago. And at that point, I really wasn't sure what to talk about this week. So I thought it might be a good opportunity to choose a poet and focus on a few of their lesser known poems as I did back in June with Edgar Allan Poe. I took a look at some Victorian poetry websites, 
came across a poem that I kind of liked called Ode, realized that the name of the poet, Arthur O'Shaughnessy, sounded familiar, and decided to look a little more into his background. He seemed interesting. As it turns out, he had not one, but four species of lizards named after him. And I thought, Eureka! According to Wikipedia, O'Shaughnessy was a British poet of Irish descent and herpetologist, with herpetology being a branch of zoology that studies amphibians and reptiles. And if you ask me, poet slash herpetologist just sounds awesome. Born in London in 1844, Arthur William Edgar O'Shaughnessy started working as a transcriber in the library of the British Museum in 1861 at the age of 17. Wikipedia suggests that according to rumor, O'Shaughnessy got the job through the influence of a prominent politician and writer, Ed Edward George Errol Lytton Bulwer Lytton and that he was, quote, one of Bulwer Lytton's many bastard children, end quote. But in an article called Arthur O'Shaughnessy, an Anglo-Irish poet, Robert Finnegan calls this a, quote unquote, misconception. It seems like these rumors persisted, at least in part, because O'Shaughnessy isn't that well known. And it's not one that I feel comfortable looking into further, even though it did add a bit of intrigue when I first looked into O'Shaughnessy's bio. However, one thing that doesn't seem to have been in dispute is that O'Shaughnessy showed promise in the sciences. And a few years after he started working at the British Museum, he became a herpetologist in its zoology department. And over the course of his career, he identified a number of new reptilian species. In a book called Arthur O'Shaughnessy, His Life and His Work, with selections from his poems, Louise Chandler Moulton explains that O'Shaughnessy spent his time at the museum, quote, in a queer little subterranean cell, strongly scented with spirits of wine and with grim creatures pickled round him in rows on rows of gallipots, end quote. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, Albert Gunther and George Albert Boulanger honored him posthumously with the specific name O'Shaughnessy that was given to four new lizard species, and I apologize in advance if I butcher these names. Columna O'Shaughnessy, Cercosaura O'Shaughnessy, and Yaleoides O'Shaughnessy, and Pachydactylus O'Shaughnessy. Despite his work in the sciences, literature is said to have been O'Shaughnessy's true passion. He published three volumes of poetry between 1870 and 1874, and in 1875, wrote a book of children's stories with his wife, Eleanor, called Toyland. O'Shaughnessy had a number of influential friends, including poet and artist Dante Gabriel Rossetti, one of the original members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, who were a group of mid-19th century British artists and writers who found inspiration in the natural world 
and rejected what you might call the mechanistic approach that was starting to be seen in some forms of art due to the influence of the Industrial Revolution. I spoke about the pre-Raphaelites in my episode on the aesthetic movement this past spring. So maybe that's why O'Shaughnessy's name rang a bell to me when I first saw it. In a limerick cited in Finnegan's article, Rossetti described O'Shaughnessy as follows. Quote, there's the Irishman, Arthur O'Shaughnessy. On the chessboard of poets as pawns is he. Though bishop or king would be rather the thing. End quote. According to Finnegan, even though Rossetti was a friend, he kind of reduced O'Shaughnessy to a quote-unquote minor poet by calling him a pawn and comparing him to bishops and kings. I mean, what a friend, huh? Although we've all known people like that, I'm sure. And in a 1957 essay called What is Minor Poetry? T.S. Eliot actually referred to O'Shaughnessy as such, saying that he was a poet, quote, who has written just one or only a few good poems so that there seems no reason for anybody going beyond the anthology, end quote. However, Finnegan suggests that O'Shaughnessy's failure so far to become a household name is more complicated than that, and is due in part to his heritage as a quote-unquote Anglo-Irishman, in other words, his Irish background kept him from being seen as English enough to be included in the British canon, but as an Irish Protestant who was born and raised in England, he also probably wasn't seen as Irish enough for the Irish canon. Also, O'Shaughnessy died in 1879 at the age of 36. According to Wikipedia, this was reportedly from a quote-unquote chill that he caught after walking home from the theater on a rainy night. So even though life expectancy during the Victorian era wasn't very high, part of me wonders how much more work O'Shaughnessy might have produced had he lived longer. I'm going to read Ode to You Now. It's the poem O'Shaughnessy is best known for, and if the first two lines sound familiar to you, it may be because Gene Wilder recited them in the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which was another aha moment for me because I loved that film as a kid. O'Shaughnessy first published this poem in 1873, and it is the first poem in his 1874 collection, Music and Moonlight, Poems and Songs. According to Wikipedia, Ode is widely believed to consist of only three stanzas, even though, as you're about to see, it's actually nine stanzas long. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. Wandering by lone sea breakers, and sitting by desolate streams. World losers and world forsakers on whom the pale moon gleams. Yet, we are the movers and shakers 
of the world forever, it seems. With wonderful deathless ditties, we build up the world's great cities. And out of a fabulous story, we fashion an empire's glory. One man with a dream at pleasure shall go forth and conquer a crown. And three, with a new song's measure, can trample a kingdom down. We, in the ages lying, in the buried past of the earth, built Nineveh with our sighing, and Babel itself in our mirth, and overthrew them with prophesying to the old of the new world's worth. For each age is a dream that is dying, or one that is coming to birth. A breath of our inspiration is the life of each generation, a wondrous thing of our dreaming, unearthly, impossible seeming. The soldier, the king, and the peasant are working together in one, till our dream shall become their present, and their work in the world be done. They had no vision amazing, of the goodly house they are raising. They had no divine foreshowing of the land to which they are going. But on one man's soul it hath broken a light that doth not depart. And his look or a word he hath spoken wrought flame in another man's heart. And therefore today is thrilling with a past day's late fulfilling, and the multitudes are enlisted in the faith that their fathers resisted, and scorning the dream of tomorrow, are bringing to pass as they may. In the world, for its joy or its sorrow, the dream that was scorned yesterday. But we, with our dreaming and singing, ceaseless and sorrowless we, the glory about us clinging, of the glorious futures we see, our souls with high music ringing. O oh, men, it must ever be that we dwell in our dreaming and singing a little apart from ye. For we are afar with the dawning and the suns that are not yet high. And out of the infinite morning, Intrepid, you hear us cry. How, spite of your human scorning, once more God's future draws nigh. And already goes forth the warning that ye of the past must die. Great hail, we cry to the comers from the dazzling unknown shore. Bring us hither your sun in your summers and renew our world as of yore. You shall teach us your songs, new numbers, and things that we dreamed not before. Yea, in spite of a dreamer who slumbers and a singer who sings no more. I'm not going to say too much about this poem in terms of analysis. As I think I mentioned in my episode on Edgar Allan Poe's poems, Literary analysis is not my strong point. 
And besides, I would prefer my listeners to interpret it however they'd like. But I did want to point out something in Finnegan's article that I found interesting. In addition to his other accomplishments, O'Shaughnessy was a highly skilled pianist. And his musical influence can be seen not only in the title of one of his poetry collections, but also, I think, in the rhyme scheme and metaphors in a number of his poems, in addition to Ode. In the words of Moulton, who seems to have known O'Shaughnessy and other pre-Raphaelite poets pretty well on a personal basis, quote, I never saw him dull. Some little thing had always interested him and I half wondered the mummy's insects with which he was surrounded did not quicken into life under the magnetism of his soul-living touch." End quote. And even though I'm just starting to learn more about him, O'Shaughnessy strikes me as a kind of a Renaissance man, if you will, with a wide variety of interests, which is the type of person I'm drawn to, both in life and in history. And I think he exemplifies something about this podcast that I absolutely love. Namely, how often something that I talk about in one episode a few months ago ends up tying in with something that at first seems completely different in another episode. I think it says a lot about the amount of innovation, both scientific and artistic, that makes the Victorian era so endlessly fascinating for so many of us. And now, I want to know what you think. Please feel free to email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or leave me a tip either on Linktree slash the Victorian Variety Show, one word, or on the Good Pods app. And you can also help me out by taking a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that helps this podcast reach more listeners. And I would like to take a moment now and thank Owen for leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. Owen, I'm sorry it's taken me a little while to give you a shout out on here, but I really appreciate your kind words and support of the show. And for everyone who's listening, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It turned out to be very different from what I originally planned to talk about this week, but sometimes that turns out to be a good thing because learning something new and putting something on your radar is always a good thing. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a shorter O'Shaughnessy poem that I found in Moulton's book, although it originally appeared in his 1870 collection called An Epic of Women and Other Poems. It's titled, There is an Earthly Glimmer in the Tomb. And I chose it to give you another taste of O'Shaughnessy's writing. It's shorter than Ode, first of all, and the tone is a little different. 
yet I feel you can still get a good idea of what his style was like and also what he was capable of as a poet. There is an earthly glimmer in the tomb and healed in their own tears and with long sleep, my eyes unclose and feel no need to weep. But in the corner of the narrow room, behold, love's spirit standeth with the bloom that things made deathless by death's self may keep. Oh, what a change, for now his looks are deep and a long patient smile he can assume. While memory, in some soft low monotone, is pouring like an oil into mine ear. The tale of a most short and hollow bliss that I once throbbed indeed to call my own, holding it hardly between joy and fear and how that broke and how it came to this.